All right, folks, what's going on? This is Jake Hofer, and this is the Land Podcast. We have a great episode here for you guys this week, and it is with Jen Bush. Jen has been in the world of real estate for knocking on 20 years. She worked with a builder initially out of school and then transitioned into a job at an attorney's office where they handled real estate transactions and then went to uh, lending and worked with a company that later became Compure Financial, which is uh, one of the biggest lenders in agriculture and recreational and rural residential land. And then in 2019, she transitioned to Land Pros and uh, their division of Country Living in 2019. So um, overall, an expert in the world of real estate. And uh, it was a pleasure to talk with her and talk all about kind of a wide spectrum of things. We discuss interest rates, we discuss uh, market outlook, um, appraisals, and so much more. And uh, really appreciate her taking the time to talk all about this. And I know I learned a lot. So hopefully you guys will as well. As always, the Linktree links has all the information that you can uh, track down here for the podcast, including the email newsletter, sign up, and also <clears throat> different ways to connect with uh, Jen and myself. So we hope you guys enjoy it. And here we go. Hope you guys have a wonderful week. And we have uh, Jen Bush here on the podcast here. Thank you for, thanks for taking the time here this morning to talk a little bit about real estate. Oh, thanks, Jake, for having me. I am excited to have a discussion here today. Yeah, I, I'm, I've been racking my brain like, because uh, I want to bring a lot of, uh, I guess, variety of guests on here. And we've had a lot of first-time land buyers kind of discuss their story. But I think you're a very interesting guest for a lot of reasons, because you've been in some, you know, former fashion in the real estate space for a really long time. Tell us a little bit about your career history. Oh, sure. Definitely. Gosh, I got started in the real estate field more than 20 years ago. I went to school for sales and marketing and all of a sudden I found myself working at a uh, builder's office, development office here in the Rochester area of Minnesota, Southeast Minnesota. And I found myself working in their office, uh, doing secretarial work and learning about building permits and land development. And um, I really loved it. I loved looking at the blueprints. I love finding out what the process is through government of you know actually obtaining a permit to build and what it took to actually develop a piece of land to get it into the form that it takes to actually build a home on it. And there's so many more steps than people realize. And that always starts with a family farm. A family farm needs to be sold in order to make housing. My career did start in that arena over 20 years ago, I quickly found out that building and real estate has its ups and downs. So it's kind of like a real uh, a roller coaster ride. A couple of years after I started at the uh, builder's office, I got laid off. That would have been in like 2003. We had a little bit of a dip in the construction business and they were building like crazy. And I always joke, I remember when it cost way less to build a new home than it did to purchase new or to purchase existing, I should say. Really? Yeah. The times that I worked at the builder's office, it cost of materials and labor was inexpensive in the early 2000s that you could build for less than it was to purchase an existing home that was maybe 10 or 15 years old. There's a little bit of history for you. Yeah. <laughs> I was in second grade. I think I didn't realize yeah, that. Much uh, different than today. Much yes. different 
today. What was the cost to like build a, you know, a, a builder grade home for that period in terms you know, of the, what then, the market was? Some kind of entry level homes were around 150,000. Mm-hmm. Your split levels, 980 square feet on the main, just, just your entry level homes here in the Southeast Minnesota area, about 150,000 would get you your entry level brand new mm-hmm. construction home. Wow. And then I was seeing uh, existing homes go for 160, 175, somewhere in there. So now that same home today would probably cost you 280 to 320,000. I'm going to do a quick inflation calculation real quick. So bear with me. 150,000 from 2003 to 2021. Let's uh, try to rely on uh, Google here, giving us the right information. That This says that it would be about 223,000 would be the equivalent. Yeah. I would say it's, you know, yeah, that's interesting. What, what caused that, I guess, uh, decline in building in 2003? Was it just I think what happened is building materials and prices started going up. And then all of a sudden we had some blips in the market too during that. It didn't last long. It was maybe a very, very slight, uh, we might've been actually in a bear market too at that time, but it didn't last long because then the next thing that happened was when I got laid off, I started working in a real estate law office. And then I got to learn all about closing transactions for real estate trust accounts, balancing, handling all the money part of it, abstracting. I did a lot of abstracting title searches. I learned about how things get recorded, a lot of legal stuff I was exposed to with the attorneys I worked with. And I was working Sundays because we were busy because all of a sudden we were in our first refinance boom of anyone could remember. Rates had been hovering around like six, 7% in the early 2000s. Then all of a sudden they went to four and everyone was just clamoring at getting a, a, a refinance done. It was just probably 2003 and four and five. And banks were lending money and they were giving low rates out. Uh, HUD enacted this uh, new theory that everyone should own a home. Loosening was going on, starting to get to be a new thing for banks. Hey, maybe we should loosen up some lending. Uh, the economy's good. Let's, let's get people in homes. And we're going, 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 going. Yeah. Yeah. That leads up to my next pop. Real estate law office, the only way for me to go was to be an attorney. And that wasn't what I wanted to do at that time. I had a young son on my own. And I thought, you know, I love doing the banking side of it. Let's give that a whirl. I was approached by a credit union and I started working for them and lending and getting exposed to, you know, what it takes to have a good credit score and, and risk versus rates and loan to values and all that stuff. I, I was in the mortgage lending business from 2005 until 2019. And I spent a lot of my career uh, within agricultural finance with farm credits here in, in Minnesota, uh, their name is comp here now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're the fourth largest farm credit uh, in America. But I learned so much about lending and I, I made a really good base. But going back to, you know, markets and things like that, market history uh, shows us that in 2008, October, actually, we had a crash. We, our stock market started failing because Bear Stearns fell and a lot of reissue company, reissue insurance companies failed. And 
we started into one of the biggest recessions of our economic lives mm-hmm. and it got cu- kind of tough. The housing market really started failing because there was all these foreclosures. Banks had lent on things they shouldn't have. I remember writing loan programs that were stated income. Someone could just simply fill out an application. They could tell me they were a waitress and they could tell me they made 150. So no verification. No verification as long as their credit met the qualifications. And sometimes they didn't have to have a lot of down payment. Uh Some warehouse lenders would do 40 year mortgages. We had reverse amortization loans where you'd start your payments out and you would actually add more balance to the mortgage as time went on because the banks were playing the game of appreciation and they thought houses would just continue to appreciate because we were on a roll. Mm -hmm. It didn't happen. There needed to be more regulation on the back end of mortgage bonds and how that, how that worked behind the scenes. Yeah. And there came the TARP funds and all that fun stuff. Not fun. There was a time where there was over 3,400 houses for sale in my local MLS. And today there's 340. Wow. Flooded market. Like flooded market. Yeah. You couldn't sell a house to save your soul. You would see price drops and price drops. I was in mortgage at that time and we were still lending and things like that. And we really, really held the reins back. And people always needed to borrow. There was a lot of hard conversations had with clients at that time. I lent in seven states and Arizona, Florida was hit very, very hard with that recession. And there were people that would lose thousands of dollars in equity during that 2008 to roughly 2011. Wow. Yeah. I'll tell you this, the purchase that I just went through on the new house, they needed everything short of my blood type and firstborn child, which is good. You know, I'm, I'm glad that those regulations are in place to make sure that people aren't getting hurt or, you know, buying something that they can't afford. But it's crazy how much that's changed in just, you know, eight or 10 years, really. Or I guess it's a little bit longer. Yeah, now. it's been about 11 years, really, since we started the recovery in lending. And um, there's been some really good changes. You can see some loosening here and there. It just depends on the lender. But overall, I think we are protected now from from the lending industry because they have enacted the things they needed to do to make sure we don't get into that trap again. Do you think that it was somewhat predatory to what they were doing? Like, was it calculated? Uh, Yeah, in a way. There were so many ways to make a lot of money on the back end and consumers had no idea how the, the whole flow of funds worked. And so, yes, there were, not everybody was predatory, but there were some and it spoiled it for everybody. Uh, and that's why it's illegal. You, you can't do the things you did. Loan officers were steering folks into loans that would make them more money, like an adjustable rate when it wasn't good for them. It would adjust in a year or two years and it would, you know, double their payment. There's no way anyone could make that. Yeah. I mean, in stated income loans, come on, let's get real. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. We're on the same page there, which that's, uh, that's very interesting that I guess there was that much flexibility and, you know, from, I guess you, did you see that evolution on basically like through your line of work? Cause you Absolutely. were there until 2019. Like, did it, did you start like how much strict, like if you had to put a percentage, like how much more strict it got, what would you say? Double. Yeah. Double. I didn't have to worry, you know, in 2000, 
eight, nine, or well, I'm sorry, prior to that, probably 05 really started the floodgates of these new and inventive loans. <laughs> you know, it didn't take long for that money to just get dispersed out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that compliance and loan accessibility probably doubled in length of process and, and required items. Mm-hmm. But I would say that because of technology today and, you know, inventions of DocuSign and eSign and, and having to, you know, work with your clients a lot easier, it's easier in that respect. There's sure. a lot more things to sign. There's a lot more things to acknowledge as a consumer today, but we have all these tools. But as a, you know, people that are in lending, they really got to be on top of their game. And, and there are only good lenders out there. I will have to admit that. And I loved my career in lending. It led me to what I'm doing today. And mm-hmm. I decided that after all those years of, of mortgage lending, I wanted to do something different and try being self-employed. Mm-hmm. It was scary because I had been under Big Brother for so many years <laughs> and had benefits. I had... Uh, all kinds of things, you know, you get the water cooler talk, you form friends at, at your, uh, at your office. And, and I thought, you know, I I think I can do more. I can make a bigger impact than what I've done already. And I thought I could do that by getting my real estate license. And it has been a change that I've never regretted. I absolutely love it. Uh, it, it really, I'm glad I didn't do it any sooner than I did because I needed all those years of experience to get me to where I am today to be yeah. successful with my license. Yeah. I mean, if even if you just look at, okay, you walk through the building process of it, you've seen how that works. Cause that those, the most simple deals, sometimes I think like the, the two acre lot that should be easy are some of the most complicated deals. Cause there's like, well, can you do this? Can you do that? And it's like, you know, if you, if you broke down like the time versus, you know, pay there, it's like, this is, this is a lot of work for, you know, this, this small lot because there's so many hoops to jump through and you want to make sure you're helping your client and giving them the answers they need. But gosh, there's a lot of questions on some of those deals. You've been through that and then you go work at the attorney's office and then you see the back end of all these transactions. You've seen the deals that fall apart. You see that there was the title search before was wrong. And now there's a, you know, a title insurance policy, policy claim. You've seen all that. Mm-hmm. which most people, most agents are, are just oblivious of that as they're going into that field. Uh, yeah. It, it, you know, the whole real estate process is, is a group effort. I think about how many people touch a process, yeah. touch a real estate transaction and we can count on our hand. You're, you've got your buyer, your seller, and that could be numerous people. Mm-hmm. You've got your real estate agent on the buy side and the sell side. So we're up to at least four parties. You have your lender. You have everyone that works at the bank in the lending side. Usually two and, or three contacts throughout that process, realistically, well, at least. When I was in lending, I think we did a study once and there was 14 touches. On the on, bank side? On the bank side, yeah. Oh, jeez. And their, their goal is to always get that last, obviously. but And then all the touches that the 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 property gets ran through on the real estate side just to list it there could be five or six people at the office that touch that property for advertising and marketing yeah um, and then you think about all the people that work at the attorney's office and titles office yeah 
if I was to guess, there's probably like maybe 50, 60 people that work on each transaction. If you really think about it. Homeowners insurance, uh, transferring the electric, the water, the gas, (laughs) like, yeah, it's, it's incredible and almost a miracle that each one gets done. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That that's, that's a really good point. And, you know, being in real estate field for two years, I mean, what, what is that, what has that been like in terms of making that quite literal plunge of going self-employed? Yeah. You know, for me, it was a smooth, seamless transaction for me to go from mortgage lending into the real estate field to sell and help, help, help uh, people list and sell their property. And not only that, but help buyers buy their property. It's almost instinctual for me uh, because I know the process intimately that it's kind of like cruise control almost. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will say the biggest difference going from lending to working with the buyers and sellers is that not everybody needs to borrow to purchase. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Those are the deals you never, you never got to see. No, I never got to see that because I was always with somebody that was going to borrow, but it added a layer of complexity, but I think we're seeing a lot of cash buyers out there right now, buying land. Uh, There's a lot of 1031 exchange going on there. Again, you're working with cash. I guess I would say that that's been different and refreshing and really fun. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, my experience, you know, in banking really tied into knowing about appraisals and inspections and things like that. It goes deeper though as an agent, you got to know more, obviously. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking from my perspective of, I don't, I did not have that. This is not an encore career in some regard, in terms of like, you've already worked in in that space prior and I'm learning these things as I go and at a slower rate, to be honest. And I, you know, I think that's uh, really cool that you've already done all that. And it's obviously been uh, a rewarding and fun uh, career up to this point as well. Now, what would you say your specialty is? I mean, obviously you work with land pros and the extension of country living, but what would you say is your, your specialty or expertise? Me personally, the things I'm really good at, I guess, would be the more complex stuff, believe it or not. I've done rural acreages. You know, you list and sell a rural acreage. There's lots of things to be aware of. There's the well, the septic, and those all have to be inspected usually. Mm -hmm. And then it it all falls down to the local, either county or state, whatever jurisdiction you're in, if it meets code and and you got to deal with that, you got to deal with property lines, you got to deal with fences, you got to deal with surveys and splitting. And Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of, you know, more of those complex deals where other real estate agents shy away from because they maybe don't have the experience or they, they just don't have the confidence to to take it on, mm-hmm. which is fine. I'm, I'm good with that. I, I like to be very communicative to my clients and walk them through everything as much as possible in the most easy to understand way as well. People don't buy and sell every day. This is what we do every day. And we have to always remind ourselves, Hey, this is what we do every day. These guys. Mm-hmm. Maybe they do well. three deals in their entire life and that mm-hmm. might be high. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and selling that family farm is a super emotional thing. And yeah. I I have the utmost respect for those that decide to sell because this is a really hard thing for them to do. And in my mind, if I can make it as smooth as possible for them 
and, and put them in a really good position and make them feel good about the transaction and make them feel like they're confident about their decisions that, you know, that to me is success right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what are some things that you feel that most people in, in rural residential completely overlook or what are some things that you, you say like, man, I wish, I wish more people knew this, that would make their, I guess, search better or um, they would make a better decision. What's something that you would suggest people to know? When it comes to buyers, I think when buyers buy raw land to build on, uh, sometimes they overlook a lot of things. They may love the site. They may love the location. But once they purchase it, they maybe didn't do the due diligence they should have done when they purchased it prior to purchasing to make sure they can build in the spot they want to build. Mm-hmm. It's what you can't see under the ground that matters the most when you're building. Okay. What I mean by that is soil tests, making sure you can place the home where you want to place it, making sure that that it is a buildable site. Indeed, there have been cases where maybe somebody has purchased a piece of land, a piece of property, and they find out later that it's not buildable from the local jurisdiction and they end up selling it. Or they find out it costs 200000 to put the driveway in. Mm-hmm. Or they find out they need a conditional use permit to go through some wetlands. I cannot stress enough to buyers, you have to do your due diligence when buying a piece of land in order to build on. And that's where I can come into play and look at all that with a buyer. Mm-hmm. Um, just because it's listed for sale and says it's buildable doesn't mean that it can be built the way you think you want it to be built sure. on. So those so- are the things that I really wish buyers would stop and just yeah. slow down. Yeah. And in those going down the rabbit hole and trying to get the answer you need to as well is usually not that easy. You get passed around uh, one person, the next person. And if you even get a call back, yeah. it's just being persistent about those things and knowing upfront who to call and who to work with in order to get the answers you need to, in order to move forward in a really confident manner. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot of money that people are dealing with and it would be really unfortunate to have to turn around and sell that piece of land again, knowing that you can't do with it what you yeah. want. And at that point you have to disclose too. <laughs> like you, you know, yeah. before the people didn't know, but if, if you know, you need to disclose it. You do. You do. You get in this rabbit hole. Um, oftentimes sellers don't know what they have. They're selling a piece of land. They don't, they're selling it as is. They've had it in their family for a hundred years. They don't know if you can build on it. They don't know what the soil type is. They may be absentee owners. They don't know. And they're, they're not willing to find these things out because the buyer has different plans for it than what the seller had. And really the onus should be on the buyer if they do want to do something quite different with it. And there's a lot of agents out there that just don't understand land and how to build on it and how to, how to analyze it up front before they make a decision with their buyers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful advice. And I guess just to reiterate or break it down, it's do more due diligence than what you need to. Especially when buying land and if you think you're going to build something on it, if you're going to buy it and just let it sit and not do anything with it, that's a different story. But yeah, just just being careful with that up front. And it's not, not really hard things to do. It's just things to be aware of. And, and like I said, if you don't do this every day, you got to get an agent that knows what they're doing and, and can look at all of those aspects of purchasing. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, like you and I were licensed with land pros. We're surrounded by people that have done this for years. And that's why, you know, our clients should work with somebody that 
that has that specialized. Yeah. Yeah. Now, okay. What would be a question that you would tell a potential buyer? What interview questions should they ask an agent of like, cause you know, maybe they're not familiar with any agents or they're not acquainted with anyone and they're going to Google, you know, land agent by near me. What would be an interview question or two that would be a must ask in your opinion? If you're going to buy land and you're going to ask an agent any question at all, I would just, the number one thing I would say, well, how many transactions have you done Mm -hmm. this year? Mm -hmm. How many have you done in the last six months? Number one. Number two, are you full-time or Mm part-time? Number three, do you have the time to devote to me for a buyer? Buyers require sometimes more time because they're looking all around for land. And the market is very competitive. Yeah, that didn't get accepted this year. <laughs> they got it all. Like their agents fast. So those are just a few things I would ask. And then, you know, ask the agent too, do you have a team? Do you have somebody you can work with? Are you kind of a lone ranger? Or, or do you have somebody else you can fall back on in within your brokerage in case you're not available? You and I both know sometimes we need some time off, you know, that 80 hours a week, just... I need a little bit of time to myself, but yeah, I, I like to pride ourselves on our team, our team efforts. And a lot of times I do work in tandem with, with our other agents. If I'm not there, if, if, if we got to have somebody on the scene, we got somebody that we can fall back on. Yeah. Real estate agents are just lone rangers and they don't want to work with somebody else because it is competitive, but we don't, we believe in the team here at, at Land Pros and, and it is a very very good thing for us to support our clients in that, that manner. Yeah. You get two people for the price of one (laughs) (laughs) quite literally. Uh, uh, Yeah. And yeah, obviously with the, if you're, if you're being represented, if you are hiring a buyer's agent, more than likely the sellers are paying for that anyhow. Uh, But you do uh, get more value there, I guess. Yeah. That's, those are good questions to ask for sure. And I think that if just taking those extra steps to ask, probably going to have a smoother transaction, better, uh, situation. And the other thing to consider too, is you're hiring a buyer's agent. Their job is to not only help you get the deal closed or accepted, but it's also to get it for the cheapest price possible. What are, what would be, do you have any uh, negotiating tactics or tricks that are up your sleeve that you think uh, maybe most people wouldn't know? Uh, in today's market, <laughs> I tell you what, being fast is yeah. your biggest ally. Uh-huh. You got to be fast. You got to be really quick to the draw. There's other, you know, tips that people can use uh, to make offers. Sometimes we're using escalation clauses in this market. I've done that a couple times this year for buyers. Real quick, anyone that doesn't know what that is, can you give a, a two, two or three sentence definition of what that is? Yes. An escalation clause is just an extra added verbiage in the offer from the buyer that says, I'm willing to pay X amount over the leading bid up to a certain amount. If the home is listed for 150,000, I'm as a buyer, I'll pay 150,000, but I'll also pay $1,000 more than what this other person put in. You could have multiple offer situation and another person put in a bid for 160,000. Well, you'll go I'll go 161,000. I'll I'll beat them out, but I'm not going to exceed 165,000. That's my cap. So that's basically what an escalation clause is in a nutshell. And you've got to have somebody that knows what they're doing when they do escalation clauses. 
because that can get dangerous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't want yeah. that to be an open, uh, you don't want that to be a blank check. <laughs> no, yeah, that no. could be super dangerous. Yeah. With most of those clauses, have those been cash deals or have those been uh, like financing residential deals? Either way. Yeah. Have you had any issues with the uh, appraisal issues this year? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Same. <Have well. laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, which I don't know how much it would, uh, it would uh, cater to this crowd, but in terms of pretty much every piece of ground is appraised, you know, where it needs to or more. But for anyone that maybe uh, is looking to buy a rural residential, I had, I'll tell you this, I had a deal. It was uh, it's, it's a small deal. It's five acres, really good location, gorgeous houses everywhere around. Uh, this guy bought basically a lot and he put a brand new septic in, electric hookup, a new well, ready to be built. He has a manufactured home there right now. And we had, and I'm not representing the buyer, just the seller. And we get it out. Someone from outside of the area writes an offer. We get accepted, you know, full list price offer. Fantastic. I was like, well, I told the seller, I was like, this is a manufactured home. We may have some issues with appraisal. And then this out of state or this out of area appraiser came in half the value of what we had it listed for. Mm. And then I told the buyers like, well, you need to call a, a bank that is in that area, understands that this is a really good piece of dirt and a really good location. And then it got reappraised with a new lender and it came back to where it needed to. But I guess that is kind of a caveat of uh, more rural deals as well. And to, do you ever try to babysit appraisers? And I have. You, you've been on the lending side and then you've been on the broker side. Do you say like, oh, here's some comps that you definitely, I'm sure you're going to consider them, but maybe take a second look at them. Yeah. Uh, lenders and appraisers and real estate agents all have to be very careful what they say to each other because there's rules and laws in place now that say no influencing can go on. Okay. Right. Yep. We understand that. However, if us as a real estate agent know of comps, we are able to send those to the appraiser. They don't have to use them. They don't have to even listen to us. You can just send them and say, hey, this is how I priced the home when I listed it for sale. I use these comps. Totally up to you. If you can use them, if you can't, that's fine. We have to be very respectful of our appraisers. And sometimes they do make mistakes, right? So everybody needs to just always keep in mind that a appraisal is the bank's property. It is not the seller's property, nor the buyer's property. That appraisal report is between the appraiser and the bank. Mm-hmm. Any kind of feedback on an appraiser should always go through the bank. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that ordered it. Yeah, the buyer pays for it, but it's still the property of the bank. And so many people want to try to control that, you know, the real estate agents, the sellers and the buyers, they can't. Like you said, Sometimes the best thing to do if you get a bad appraisal is to just switch banks and get a different appraisal done. And, and sometimes that can happen. Every appraiser, it's an opinion of value. Um, and then they do comps and then they do the adjustments, obviously, on their grids. But uh, I have had a couple low appraisals come in and, and sometimes we can negotiate and work it out, meet in the middle. Otherwise, uh, what a buyer can do to protect themselves against losing the home they can agree to pay over the appraisal price. And I've seen a lot of those clauses on purchase purchase agreements where it says buyer is willing to pay the difference between appraisal value and purchase price should the appraisal come back lower. Mm-hmm. And they have to do that in cash, right? Well, Typically. They either have to do it in cash or they just raise the loan to value of their loan. Uh-huh. But, you know, that gets tricky. They got to work with their lender on that. 
there are some things you can do to mitigate the appraisals. Now, what's nice is that our market has been going strong here for quite a while. We have some really good comparables in the last six months. We're starting to see that. Uh, stabilize a little bit. Yeah. Stabilize a little bit. However, land can be a different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you have people out there buying land, we are still on a inclining market here. I don't, I feel bad for the appraisers uh, still. With tough the land. job. Yeah, it's totally a tough job. But appraisers are our friends. They will call us real estate agents for advice, ask us what's coming up, tell them what's going on because we we can only tell them they're using historical data. We're using real-time data. And that's the biggest difference. They're using stuff from six to 12 months ago. We're mm-hmm. working on today. Mm-hmm. But it's good to, to, to answer those appraiser calls, give oh, them yeah. the information that they need. They can do a good job on there. Yeah, and most times they're just, I mean, they're just pulling data and, and then they have the listing sheet on your property. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean that, it's hard to, I always like to have a conversation with them, at least an open dialogue and not for any steering or anything like that, but just like, here's what's going on and here's a recap of it. Cause I know it's easy to glaze over a listing sheet cause they're not too exciting sometimes, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and sometimes they'll ask you if there were more, multiple offers and, and that yep. goes into bearing on the opinion of value as well. Mm-hmm. And then real quick too, while we're talking about this, let's say an FHA loan is getting appraised. What happens if that comes in low? Cause that follows it for what, six months? Oh, it's pretty tough on FHA because there's very minimal down payment. And most FHA borrowers just have limited funds anyway. So there's no cash to come up. And that that appraisal follows that property for, I'm pretty sure it's six months offhand. For that particular buyer and individual, it can, yes. But if it, you know, if it goes back in the market, it's, it's fair game again. It's, it's an open book. Even if it's another FHA loan with another buyer? Uh, yeah, as far as I know, because again, that appraisal is is property of the bank. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I would have to dive into that because I think it I think it follows it, but I could be I could be wrong. You were in lending. I, I just had a, a similar. I had a situation earlier this year where I was like, "Oh, I learned that right now." <laughs> can be assigned to other banks. Okay. If another bank asks another bank to assign it to them and they agree to that, they mm-hmm. can share. They do not assign. Each bank is different. They have their own. They have their own uh, regulations as far and uh, if they want to assign that appraisal to a different bank, mm-hmm. it's called assignment of appraisal. What could have happened in your case is that that appraisal probably got assigned from the old bank to the new bank because mm-hmm. somebody said, I don't want to pay for it mm-hmm. or who knows what the situation sure. was, but um, maybe they were trying to get the house for a lesser price. I don't know the situation. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And then here's a question I always get. They're like, well, who, who does the appraisal? Do, does the bank just get to pick someone? Do you get to pick someone? How does, it, how does that process work where someone gets assigned for the appraisal? Typically, banks will use a third-party random choosing system that just yep. randomly chooses an appraiser because nothing can be influenced. I can't tell them who to use. You can't tell them who yep. to use. The bank has usually a processing department that uh, chooses an appraiser, and then they go out and get the report done. They should have qualifications. They should be an approved license appraiser. They should know that area. There's lots of things that they should have. But again, it's the bank's decision who they use and how they order it. Mm-hmm. And then while we're, while we're still talking about this, uh, now with a VA loan, are you familiar with Tidewater? 
Yes, I've heard of that. And, you know, I've been fortunate to not have to do VA loans in the past. And I, mm -hmm. I don't work with a lot of veteran loans. I have a few times. They can be more complicated, but their rates are fantastic. And it's a great service for veterans. I'm, I'm always very supportive of it. You know, my sellers, if they're looking at accepting a VA offer, I said, look at it just as you would anybody else. And a lot of times our sellers want to support our veterans and, and want to accept offers from them. I tell them, I say, you know what, we'll get through this. We'll, we'll do what they need to do because ultimately it, it benefits that, that buyer as a veteran and, and VA loans are assumable too. In most cases, if somebody has got a really good VA loan and they're living in the home and five years later, they want to sell, someone could possibly assume that with bank approval. Mm, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. It's a good deal. Yeah. If you got to deal with Tidewater, you got to deal with it. it just, you just get through it. Yeah. And I guess to break that down, that's typically, and correct me if I'm wrong, but basically when uh, it comes in short and then you have 48 hours to basically revisit with the bank and say, this needs to be passed along to the appraiser and, you know, at least consider that, which is pretty unique that they even allow that process to begin with. It would be the same process with anything. Mm -hmm. Again, as a real estate agent, buyers, sellers, that appraiser appraisal is property of the bank. You got to go oh. to the bank with any mm -hmm. anything you want to tell them about the report because you're getting it secondhand and they really have the power on that. Yep. That makes sense. Okay. And then what, you know, you've talked about the ebbs and flows of the market for the last, you know, 20 years, 19 years. What's your market outlook right now? What is your temperature? What is your your vibe? Whatever you want to call it. What do you what are you feeling with the market and the next, you know, the outlook? Which I know no one can predict the future, but mm -hmm. it, you know, every business has cycles. It's interesting. I felt a little bit of softening here in the last month as far as buyers and sellers, but I think they're just taking a break because stuff opened up for COVID and they're trying to, you know, get out and do stuff. Kids are back in school now. I still have very, very high demand from buyers. They're just laying low a little bit. Prices have been increasing at such a rate that they're kind of just taking a break because they don't want to pay some extraordinary price for a new home. Now this is the home market. There are more homes coming on the market right now today. It's October 13th, 2021 right now. <laughs> it, it shows that there's some more supply coming. Okay. I think supply will help with the demand. You'll probably see some leveling out in some areas. Uh, prices may stabilize a little bit here, hopefully, as I'm thinking we'll see a stabilization over winter. Mm -hmm. You'll probably see some more coming on the market in the spring for homes. Now the land market, I think the same thing's probably going to happen. You're going to see more supply coming. We we see that in our auction calendars. Our competitors are having a lot of auctions in November, December. We're seeing some more get listed. Uh, folks are you know concerned about tax changes. You know if there's any uh, increase in capital gains for 2022. Nobody knows that yet. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're going to see some flood of land here the end of the year. People will decide to sell at the last minute. Uh, you'll see some stabilization in the land prices, in my opinion. No one has a crystal ball. Uh, I think overall, though, real estate's still going to remain very strong. Uh, buyers are still going to need to be paying what they need to pay to get that property. You're not going to have any bargains, mm -hmm. typically. 
maybe once in a blue moon, you'll get a bargain uh, buy here and there, but sounds like building supplies are down. The, the, the material costs are coming down too. That's going to help us get some construction going again. We are far behind in units that need to be built from the last decade. I, I read a statistic yesterday that we were 3.7 million behind in housing Whoa. market, housing units that need to be built. Our, our people that were born between 1998 and uh, I believe 1985, they're all in their 30s and they, they want to purchase a home. Mm-hmm. Some of these folks are still in their parents' basements. Demand is really there and we haven't been able to build enough to keep up with, with these folks that want to mm-hmm. buy. And we haven't had enough turnover in the senior housing seniors in order to you know replenish that, that, that gap yeah yeah so i guess overall you see just this overall stabilization maybe not as crazy of a run as what we've seen the last 18 months probably not i mean you'll see some more supply like i said maybe a little bit of a stabilization but this is just very short-term futures mm-hmm. i could see the market really heating up again next summer really I really could. Yeah. Is that just a gut feeling or I mean, what, what, what makes you think that we're on a roll and sometimes (laughs) just like our bull market, we're on the longest bull market run in all time history. And I think you could see that in real estate too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you do. Well, we had, I don't know what it was in March of 2020, 2020. uh, I don't know. It was below a certain point. It wasn't, it was like right below what was considered a, whatever technical analysis of it was, I think it was a correction is what it was called. But obviously I don't know in terms of, I'm not an economist. I can't tell you <laughs> if that paused the bull run or not. One month correction. It was all we had in the stock market this year. Uh-huh. That's yeah. the shortest correction ever. Mm-hmm. Um, I just met with my financial analyst yesterday. <laughs> so you got it. You got coached up on this year. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I got coached up on all that. And I'm like, you know, I think we're going to see that in real estate. I, we're going to see that mirror each other. Long-term outlook, I bet we see in five years, finally supply might meet demand. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's everything's a cycle, right? And if rates remain relatively low, it's going to be really tough for rates to, to climb very far. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there's probably going to be concerns about inflation and how the feds deal with that. I don't know. It'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Mortgage rates follow the bond market. Short-term rates follow the feds windows for borrowing. I don't know what, what's going to happen in rates. Let's hope the economy stays strong. Let's hope we can get through the COVID stuff and, mm-hmm. and keep this rolling. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been a fun time to, to be in this space. It's been very exciting. Um, very fast paced. Like you mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. where it's like, you have to be quick. There's no like hem hawing around. And and I think that puts the heat on sellers and buyers, more buyers, but I've sold quite a bit of properties this year. People that felt like the market was going to crash and they're just trying to realize those gains and downsize and, and play on the sidelines is that that's not my decision, but I totally see their perspective. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's definitely a extremely interesting time uh, just to, to be part of the wave. It is. And, and, you know, that's just it. Be part of the wave, roll with the punches. Don't get too over excited about everything because everything's a cycle and it'll all work out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And okay. As someone maybe sitting in the situation to sell, yes, it's a great time right now to realize some of those gains, 
uh, if you want to harvest those and sit on them or however you want to, to do that and mitigate your taxes, whatever you want to do. And then on the flip side of it is from a buyer's perspective, do you think it's still okay time to buy with how low rates are? And if you're buying it in the scope of seven to 10 years that, you know, you can find peace in that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think if you're going to buy just to live in a property for two years, it's probably not a great idea. Mm -hmm. Typically over time, they say buy a home if you're going to live there five to six years. Mm -hmm. It's typically what they've said over time. You know, good luck renting, right? Uh, There's not a lot out there for rent. Mm -hmm. And it's expensive. It is. You got to look at the short term and the long term payoff. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good time to buy. Yeah, I, to buy is today or yesterday. Yeah, I always see like uh, it's like oh, of course a real estate agent can always tell you a reason why it's a good time to sell or buy, which uh, you know, because there always is. I feel there's always a uh, I guess pros and cons to any timing. Uh, it's just I don't know. It depends on what your motivation is, anyhow. But I I feel like sometimes the space gets a little bit of a hard time. Like, <laughs> but the yeah. rates are extremely low. What's the is this the lowest rates that you've seen? At, you know, you were a lender or you worked in lending and then the lowest uh, rates were after I got out of lending by so far. Like, so like right now or even like 2020 more. We're a little bit up from last year. Last year, I believe were the lowest rates they ever seen, like last summer. Mm-hmm. 2020 were the lowest rates they'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, I had friends in the lending business still that I talked to and have good relationships and they were working hours that were absolutely incredible and they were really getting burned out. It, it and was, the SBA loan was rolling around then too. You had like all the small businesses hounding all them. All those SBA loans. I mean, those poor people were worked and worked and worked. And I think they're finally getting a little bit of a reprieve, getting a vacation, getting a break. That would have been tough. Yeah, definitely. I, 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 sure that was this madness especially with the especially with the tight deadline deadlines of the sba and then you have a booming uh real estate market and then you have people refinancing it's like the perfect storm for just pure madness for them it is yeah and those funds would run out at certain points the sba funds wouldn't last that long and then yep. you've got this hurry up and get them before they're gone yeah certainly well do you have any other i guess parting words or advice for anyone that's listening that um is either looking to purchase a piece of ground or purchase a piece of rural real estate, or maybe they want to sell their house and upgrade. Do you have any parting words of advice? Well, I think for buyers today, work with your agent, work in tandem with them and, and, and just understand that in this market, your agent tries as best as they can to see everything they can see for you, but you have to be proactive as well. Mm-hmm. Kind of like working with your doctor the doctor doesn't know your needs unless you're helping take care of them as well. Mm-hmm. If I ask my buyers, be like, Hey, I'm going to do everything I can, but I need you to look too, because I can't be everywhere all the mm-hmm. time. And we have other clients we work with too. If, if it's a team effort to get them the, the property that they really, really love and the timeliness, you got to have great communication. Mm-hmm. That's great. I, I have one other question too. I'm looking at, <laughs> I pulled up the, uh, like historical chart of uh, 30-year mortgages. Do you think that we'll ever see some sort of like interest boom that happened in the 80s, like early 80s, where they got up to like 15, never? There's no way it could happen, in my uh-huh. opinion. There's uh-huh. absolutely no way it can happen because prices are too high. Uh-huh. 
prices would have to invert greatly in order to to have inflation support that yeah and rates go that high also banks would have to start paying on savings accounts good point yeah we'd have to have we'd have to have a huge huge increase in federal funds rate prime rate all of that in order to get anywhere close to you know double digit mm-hmm. quantitative easing that economic um you method that's been used for long has changed the scope of financial market rates. In my opinion, I don't think you're going to see that come back. You, you'll see highs and you'll see just, you know, increases in rates, but it's not going to be anywhere like it was before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just think it's possible. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the reasons I bring that up too, is a lot of these, a lot of rec loans are I mean, I know Compure has fixed rates, but a lot of these rec loans are five-year adjustable rate mortgages or seven. And so it's like, yeah, you're, it's great you're locking up one now, but you know who knows what things are going to be in five years. You would, I mean, they're going to have more than likely they're going to be higher. I mean, but I guess how much or not necessarily? Not necessarily. I've seen people run a 30-year mortgage on an adjustable rate that adjusted every three, four years. And mm-hmm. they always came out fine. Every time it adjusted, it's, they just hit it at the right time and they were fine. They ran the whole thing out on an adjustable. That's impressive. Yeah. Like it just depends on how it's indexed and what the floors and the margins are on that. Uh, you just really got to watch the loans that you take out and how it works and really understand what the adjustment would be when it comes up mm-hmm. as a buyer working with a lender. Yeah, that's good. Well, I, uh, I don't want to take any more time of your day here, but I'll give you an opportunity to plug anything you would like for people to, to hunt you down if maybe they're in Minnesota. We, what, what all states are you licensed in? Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa, or just Minnesota, Wisconsin? All three. Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, I cover. And I've, I've done transactions in all three states this year. And I've done, I think I'm close to 40 transactions this year. Ooh, busy year. Very busy. And I got more coming here by the end of the year that are going to be closing and pending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Jay, gosh, thanks for your time today. It was a great discussion. I'm Jen Bush, obviously with Lamp Post Country Living. And yeah, I cover mostly that Southeast Minnesota market. And uh, they can find us on our website at www.lamppost.com. Cool. Yeah. I'll link in the show notes and appreciate your time uh, and expertise. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Jake. All right, there you guys have it. Thanks for tuning in this week's episode. And thank you to Jen for her time to uh, share some of her knowledge and discuss all things real estate here. Also, if you guys found any use or information or learned something, leaving a written review would mean the world. Um, it would help us reach new people. So that would mean a ton. If you could go down and leave a written review, that would be greatly appreciated. And then head over to Linktree if you want to sign up for the email newsletter. And that's about it. We hope you guys have a great rest of your week and see ya.